The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military, especially those serving us overseas and are tuning in over the Internet today. Thank you for taking time to be with us. In just a moment, the CEO of RAND Corporation, Mr. Michael Rich, will be joining us. And as you know, the RAND Corporation is one of our premier think tanks, which provides primary research not only to the United States government, but also to foreign countries to help forge policy based on facts rather than politics and unsubstantiated beliefs, a cause to which this radio program is also devoted. But before Mr. Rich joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Michael Rich is the son of aerospace pioneer Ben Rich, who worked in Lockheed Martin's legendary skunk works developing the Nighthawk stealth fighter. Rich, a native of Los Angeles, received his undergraduate degree from the University of California at Berkeley and his law degree from UCLA. While at UCLA, Mr. Rich joined the RAND Corporation as a summer associate and upon graduation became a full-time member of the company's research team. He rose to the top the hard way. He was largely admired for his unwavering commitment to objective analysis his insightful interpretation of the data, and his ability to present information in a way that was meaningful in shaping public policy. Mr. Rich served as the vice president of RAND's National Security Division and is credited with the company's work in the Middle East following the Cold War. He was responsible for the federally funded research center, which provides critical information to the Secretary of Defense as well as military and intelligence agencies. In 2011, Mr. Rich became RAND Corporation's president and CEO. And today, in addition to being a member of the faculty of the Pardee RAND Graduate School, the world's largest Ph.D. program in public policy, uh, he's also a board member of the Council for Aid to Education and several other education, health, and policy organizations. And wherever Mr. Rich goes... The value of putting empirical data ahead of dogma and private agendas is his foremost objective. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a powerful voice in shaping public policy at home and abroad, Mr. Michael Rich. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Rich. Uh, Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for that kind introduction. So for listeners who are not familiar with the RAND Corporation, perhaps we could start by explaining what the company does and who it serves. Well, uh, Rebecca, RAND is a nonprofit research organization, and its mission is to help improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Uh, As you pointed out, we're strictly nonpartisan, and uh, that means uh, we believe that facts, uh, evidence, and science should drive debates about policy, not uh, anecdotes or partisan rhetoric. Uh, We were established now just over 65 years ago, so we're in our seventh decade. Our initial focus was defense and national security matters, uh, and that uh, is still an area of considerable strength for us. It's about half of what we do. Um, But long ago, we diversified, and today we specialize in more than a dozen broad uh, policy areas, health, education, energy, transportation, international affairs. I'm just naming a few. And uh, plus, as you pointed out, we operate a world-class Ph.D. program, in fact, the largest doctoral program in the field of public policy, the Pardee Rand Graduate School. Uh, To give you uh, a sense of size, uh, we have about uh, 2,000 employees, nearly 2,000 employees, who come from more than 50 countries. Uh, They speak dozens of different languages. 
We publish about uh, 1,000 reports, articles, commentaries uh, each year. And because we're dedicated to the public interest, uh, our work is available for free in full online. Um, And last year, I think we had uh, about 8 million downloads uh, from our website, RAN.org, of our various research publications. So in a nutshell, uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan, uh, mission-driven, and the reputation uh, of RAND and the brand name is really is built on trust, and the trust comes from the quality and objectivity of our research, and, and those are our two core values. Now, I know that the sometimes there's a big gap between perception and reality, so I want to state again that the RAND Corporation is nonpartisan, and I think that's a very important point, because depending on what your research reveals you must have to fight the perception that the study is skewed in some way towards the left or the right, particularly given how polarized the country has become in recent years. So uh, how is it possible with so much data and information at our fingertips uh, that we've become so polarized? You would think that all this data would make decision-making more rational, wouldn't you? Uh, You definitely would. But, uh, Rebecca, you're exactly right. The country um, has become more polarized, and in particular, the the public discourse uh, has become increasingly uh, polarized. I think everybody has their uh, sort of favorite illustrations of this. You know, for me, it's the um, uh, it it comes from the the Supreme Court. associate justice nomination process, um, which used to be a fairly straightforward process of a president picking a a distinguished jurist usually or public official to become uh, a Supreme Court justice. And as recently as 1993, just 20 years ago, when President Clinton had an opportunity to nominate his first justice, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she was confirmed by a vote of 96 to 3. Uh, In fact, more than 90% of the Republicans uh, voted in favor of her nominations. Um, And and for the most part, uh, confirmation of justices has been a a nonpartisan matter. But um, then, I think about 10 or 12 years later, when President George W. Bush uh, nominated Samuel Alito, uh, 90% of Democrats voted no. Um, And then 88% of Republicans voted against President Obama's nomination of Elena Kagan just four years after that. And so that's just one indication of how polarized uh, we are. There's there's quite a bit of research. Rand has done some of the research on the reasons for polarization, and it's complex. And I don't think people understand um, all the reasons. Uh, But certainly part of it is is actually that people are sorting themselves geographically, and we have more and more clusters of... Of, of like-minded people, um, and of course now there's the availability of information channels that cater directly to somebody's um, own um, particular beliefs and partisan views. So in my view, organizations like RAND uh, committed to uh, looking at the facts and developing uh, objective analyses of the facts, uh, deriving recommendations uh, from those facts, um, they're more and more important as time goes on. I think you'd agree it's not just the nomination of justices. It, it's anybody that the president puts before the House and Senate. That's correct, and it's the. it, it seems to be— the, I mean, they, they've all happened. become political footballs. Uh, it, it certainly seems that way, and it's uh, it seems to be true no matter who the president is or, or yes. which party controls the Senate. That's right, and, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I've got two children, and when they used to get into a fight in the back of the car, uh, I didn't really care who started it. <laughs> right. I, I have two myself, so I'm very familiar with that. Uh, uh, that's right. They both got sent to their room. Uh, now, you know, what I, I, I think both of us uh, w- would also concede, though, that the problems we're dealing with are complex today, and yes. uh, they're difficult to solve. Um, so uh, it, it's not that uh, solutions to some of our biggest problems are directly at hand uh, either, but... Uh, progress does seem to be slower uh, when the discourse uh, and the debate is so polarized. But That's you, true. But That's true. But, you know, even though the problems are much more complex and multifaceted, we do have to remember that you have to you have to still try to make progress. You have to put some proposal, some plan, and accept the fact that there's probably going to be flaws in it, but you work those flaws out as you move forward. 
And I think that we, we are spending so much of our time looking for what is wrong with every bill, with every uh, nominee, with every program that's put forward. And then having the media harp on what is wrong has not been very helpful. It, it, it's my definition of gridlock. If you're only looking for what's wrong, you're not going to be able to get anything through. And I think that that's what you were speaking toward. Now, we have to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the impact Rand has had in the Middle East. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data, and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM Big Data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. So here's a question for you. Is life getting easier or harder? Take the last five years, for example. Do things feel more complicated, more unwieldy, more unmanageable? If your answer is yes, then you're not alone. Technology is supposed to take care of this, but instead we find ourselves running on a treadmill that's going faster and faster every day. That's why I'm asking you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, the first book that shows how complexity leads to gridlock, a confusion between facts and beliefs, and eventually failure. The Watchman's Rattle is the only book that explains why those who master complexity come out on top in business, in government, and in life. Go to RebeccaCosta.com and order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle now. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Find out why quick changing environments mean quick opportunities for success. Hi everyone, this is Case Whirling. MZ and I are quite proud of the station you're listening to. Quite frequently, I meet people who express their appreciation for KSCO, one of the few remaining independent, locally owned radio voices left in our country. Of course, this is gratifying, but it's very important that you understand and keep in mind that KSCO is made possible by three things. Advertising sales, book, hat, bag, and other KSEO gear sales, and in particular, longevity health product sales. You see, every time somebody in our audience purchases longevity products such as Beyond Tangy Tangerine or the Healthy Start Pack, that person is directly supporting our operation and making it possible for us to continue to serve our community. We feel good about recommending these products because they are of the highest quality and they do work. I know because I take these products every day and I can enthusiastically vouch for their goodness and effectiveness. I first heard Dr. Wallach's message about taking charge of your health through nutrition nearly 20 years ago. I strongly believe in nutritional supplementation over toxic prescription drugs and invite you to help yourself and help KSCO and KOMY by trying and using these products as I do. Visit kscoteam.com or kscohealth.com or call one of your local longevity distributors. For KSCO and KOMY, this is Case Whirling. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the president and CEO of the RAND Corporation, Mr. Michael Rich. And before the break, we were talking about how complex and global the problems we face have become and and um, how that's often led to looking for what's flawed with a proposal or even a Supreme Court justice nominee. Is that right? Correct. So there have to be times when your research turns up very different results from what your client was anticipating. Um, Can you give us an example of a case where the results of your work had an unexpected impact on domestic policy or a decision? Well, sure. In fact, um, uh, often uh, our um, research results or the findings surprise both sides. Yes. Um, I think the first time I remember this happening was back in the middle 1960s when the Congress was considering the idea of medical savings accounts. And actually both um, the Democrats and the Republicans um, had concerns about it. And uh, the RAND analysis showed that neither concern, a uh, set of concerns, was well-founded, and um, uh, that broke the impasse. And, uh, of course, we now have medical savings accounts. But perhaps the most contentious and, and possibly surprising uh, result th- that I can remember was on the issue of mandatory minimum drug sentencing. Uh, sometime around 15 years ago, uh, federal law was enacted that uh, required a person who was convicted of possessing half a kilogram or more of uh, cocaine, uh, required that uh, he or she be sentenced to at least five years in prison. And actually, that uh, law had a broad bipartisan support. But it turned out when you analyzed it carefully, the mandatory minimum sentences just simply were not justifiable uh, on the basis of cost effectiveness. If your interest was either reducing cocaine consumption or the expenditures on cocaine or even drug-related crime, the costs of incarceration were, were just too high. And uh, other sentencing regimes were were just more cost effective, um, uh, a better use of taxpayer dollars. And so uh, uh, when you look at the facts and you, you try to uh, analyze them objectively, uh, you need to be prepared for surprising solutions. In fact, uh, when I began my career at RAND, uh, my very first mentor, uh, an economist who worked here by the name of Nancy Nimitz, uh, that was her slogan, uh, prepare to be surprised. Don't form a conclusion on an issue until you've collected all the data, analyzed it with all the available techniques, then draw a conclusion. But until then, uh, prepare to be surprised. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I think that uh, every research project, you have to be prepared to find something in there that was unexpected. And if you aren't doing that, then you've probably biased the research in some way to go looking for what you were hoping to find. Um, and, uh, And I think that with clients, you know, they're always hiring research organizations to help buttress a particular assumption that they have. I, I found that to be true over the years. Uh, and, and it's always difficult and tricky to come back and say, well, actually, that isn't what we found. Yeah, you, uh, you have to develop a thick skin uh, <laughs> if you have that uh, aspiration, which we do. That's right. Oh, if it's okay with you, uh, I'd like to move on to the Middle East where RAND has a shining example of the impact fact-based policy and reforms can have on stabilization. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work in Jordan? I, I believe RAND was asked to help the, the government at a time when thousands of Syrians were crossing into Jordan, and it, and it looked like it could be a very unstable situation. Well, it continues to be a a challenge not only for Jordan but for Lebanon. Uh, The Syria conflict is already a huge humanitarian uh, disaster, um, and uh, there's obviously a little sign that um, uh, there's going to be relief uh, in the near future. It's, yes. it's a real, real tragedy, uh, and and of course the burdens are falling on um, uh, nations that are not well equipped in terms of resources and in infrastructure. Um, Rand's work in the Middle East um, actually goes back to the very beginning of the institution, but initially our wor- our research was up on or about the Middle East for American government clients who who needed to know about developments and uh, receive recommendations about policies. Uh, But about 10 years ago, now a little bit more than 10 years ago, uh, we we, uh, came upon some opportunities to actually perform research for decision makers uh, in in the Middle East. 
and um, we now work for a, a variety of different uh, countries interested in um, reforming policies and programs, um, uh, including both uh, Arab countries as well as Israel, uh, and uh, hopefully in the near future, Turkey as well. Um, but maybe the best example that I can think of of ongoing work involves the Kurdistan region of Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, which has a very, I think, forward-looking approach to devising public policies, particularly social policies, um, what we would call elementary and secondary education, uh, primary uh, delivery of primary health care, uh, and they're particularly interested in creating the uh, the structure and the incentives and the programs to permit the growth of the private sector, uh, which has been underdeveloped, uh, was underdeveloped in uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have uh, now a, a several-year-long uh, effort uh, helping the Minister of Planning and the Prime Minister uh, develop policies and uh, procedures to improve uh, the education system, uh, improve the delivery of health care, and build a fact-based policy formulation capability. Now, do you think there is a blueprint being created that can also migrate to Afghanistan? Because we're getting ready to pull out of Afghanistan, and as you know, uh, they don't. They have not had sufficient time to build up an economy, to build up infrastructure. So there has to be some plan there for yep. the con- the country to stand on its own two feet, or we've effectively opened the door for terrorism to come back in. It's a very tall order. I think there are some common elements that countries wishing to modernize uh, can follow. Uh, we've recently started work in Mongolia that follows some of the same. Um, a path that we've uh, we've followed in other countries, but of course you have to customize the the analysis and the recommendations for for the the um, the particular setting. But you would think if you have one shining example, for example Jordan, uh, which avoided the Arab Spring, avoided turmoil, effected uh, reforms in a very managed and controlled way. You would think that if Rand Corporation has one great example in the Middle East, you you would have others wanting to replicate that, no? Well, uh, that's that's certainly what what everybody is hoping for, um, and uh, depending on what month, uh, there seems to be good or promising news um, uh, from various places. And now I think some of the the um, uh, events and, and developments in Tunisia uh, are are ones that um, seem promising, but mm-hmm. uh, this is a long-term and fragile process of of evolution and development, uh, and um, uh, will I think won't uh, necessarily see progress in a straight line, but but rather a jagged line. Well, what has your research told us about uh, the Arab Spring? Uh, we have to go to break here very shortly, but uh, uh, was that uh, did that decrease the threat to the United States? Increase the threat? Is there any research to indicate that? I think it, it it hasn't been very long since the developments that are are known as the Arab Spring, and um, and there's differences amongst uh, academics and and scholars about that. Uh, but I, I my own sense is that over the long term, uh, the developments are going to be positive, but mm-hmm. um, we're going to have to be patient. That's a good way to end this segment, patience. We don't have enough of that. (laughs) All right, we're going to take another break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with Michael Rich. You're listening to the Costa Report. love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. 
Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Folks, Michael Olson here at Santa Cruz Electronics, where doing it yourself is going to a whole new level. Just witnessed cutting-edge technology CNC milling machine. John Bowers, what does this machine do? It whittles away material from whatever it is you're working with and uh, removes everything until you get to the shape of the part that you want. Just saw John mill out his own wrench from a chunk of material. He put a computer program in, turned the machine on. The machine said, yes, John, here's your wrench. This is a game changer technology. It certainly is. It actually allows oh, you and I and other folks to uh, be able to do small-scale manufacturing uh, right out of their garage. Come down here to Santa Cruz Electronics on Soquel Avenue and get a demonstration learn how to do it. It's uh, great fun and can be rewarding, too. Come and look at it right here at Santa Cruz Electronics, 2808 Soquel Avenue. It's a CNC milling machine. Dream up a widget in the morning and have it done in the afternoon and put it on eBay at night. Just like that, right, John? You bet. They say we spend $25 billion a year sweating it out at the gym. Sweat contains some of the essential nutrients your body needs to grow strong and stay healthy. If you sweat these nutrients out and fail to replace them, your body will begin breaking down. Some say you can get all 90 of the essential nutrients from the foods you eat. Maybe, but if you eat foods from farmed-out soils or foods that have had the life processed out of them, you will deprive your body of some essential nutrients. You can get all 90 of the essential nutrients your body needs for less than a daily latte with a 90 for Life Healthy Start Pack. It's easy, it's delicious, and they are essential. Ace is the place to pick up Dr. Joel Wallach's 90 for Life Healthy Start Pack. Swing by Ace Hardware in Freedom, Gilroy, Marina, Salinas, and Watsonville and ask for the 90 for life. You'll get all the nutrients your body needs to grow strong and stay healthy for less than a daily latte. Remember, Ace is your place for the 90 for life. Hi, I'm Pamela Fugit-Hetrick, the host of Money Moves. Cash flows and money moves, but do you find money moving out of your wallet faster than it comes in? Do you wish you had a personal money manager? Do your best Dirty Harry imitation. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Go ahead. Make my day. Pretend that your finger is your gun. Quick draw, aim, point, and straight ahead. Notice that one finger is pointing out, but you have at least three pointing back at you. You're the best person to manage your own money. To get the tools you need for the job, listen to Money Moves Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. As your host, I promise that each week, Money Moves will leave you with some tips and tools to help you manage your own money. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves. Remember, that's Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest is Michael Rich. Uh, now, you've been at this since you were in college, and so I suspect it isn't difficult to separate symptoms from the actual disease. Uh, you must see some macro causes that instigate or aggravate social issues, uh, issues like exploding population growth, for example, which uh, many experts claim uh, is the cause of massive unemployment, deteriorating health care, education, and infrastructure in countries where the Arab Spring occurred. So uh, in your view, are we in danger of focusing too much on symptoms and then sidestepping these larger root causes? Well, I think that that's uh, many times a danger in many different policy areas, and, and I think you're astute to put, uh, put your finger on it uh, here uh, in this case. And so I think the answer is, is correct. And I think that's why some of the more forward-looking uh, countries are focused on human capital development, uh, education, um, the development of uh, workforce um, capabilities, and so on. Uh, that's one of the longest um, uh, sets of capabilities to develop. Uh, the education system in countries um, is one of the hardest and most time-consuming to improve and strengthen, and it's an appropriate place to um, uh, put some initial effort. But when we, um, it, going back to your earlier question about um, 
how to respond to, to the Arab Spring. You know, we have a lot of historical uh, examples of uh, similar kinds of developments in Africa and Latin America and so on. There are some lessons uh, from, from that. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think, is that militaries um, will need to be subordinated to civilian authorities. Um, that's been a key to success uh, in uh, in other important and successful transitions. Um, the other important, uh, I think, factor is political inclusiveness. Um, that can help stabilize a, a transition, uh, including uh, all important um, factions, movements, uh, and where um, relevant ethnic groups uh, in a uh, in a transitional governing arrangement, uh, that's important. Um, economic problems uh, sometimes complicate transitions, but in the past they haven't uh, derailed uh, democratization. Um, so most of the the effort, I think, um, from the outside needs to help support institutional reform and, in particular, build civil society, because many of the countries undergoing these transformations have had things that we take for granted as the pillars of civil society, private organizations, labor unions, whatever, um, those kinds of uh, non-governmental organizations and traditions, sometimes they're religious institutions, uh, those have been eviscerated in some of these uh, long-time dictatorships. Those have to rebuilt and often can be rebuilt with support from, from outside. Yeah, if we get the disease wrong, we're going to get the cure wrong. And it's shocking to me how often we think the problem was whether they had a dictatorial government or a, uh, a democracy. Uh, democracy in and of itself isn't going to create employment, create a, a valuable economy. Uh, nothing has changed for the person on the street in Egypt or Libya or Tunisia. Uh, and, and those kinds of changes, as you pointed out in the earlier segment, you have to be patient and you have to be willing to invest in infrastructure. Uh, we now know that the largest migration of human beings ever in the history of humankind is taking place right now from rural areas into urban areas. And th- this explains a lot of the unrest and a lot of the issues that uh, these urban areas are facing right now, including perhaps the Arab Spring. So I get concerned that government leaders, the media in particular, seem to focus on these symptoms, and we go to cure the symptom, but we're just putting a Band-Aid on a cancer patient. We're not really getting to the root cause of these issues. Well, your uh, focus on urbanization is exactly right on target. And one of the complicating factors, in addition to overtaxing uh, insufficient infrastructure in, in, in urban areas around the world, is that most of them are on coastlines. And um, those coastlines, of course, are getting increasingly vulnerable uh, as sea levels are rising. And um, so uh, pretty soon we'll have an overlay of another uh, environmentally related uh, a challenge for these large and burgeoning urban areas. I, I guess uh, when we're talking about the the coastal areas, for example, uh, the change, the climate change, the, uh, which we're experiencing right here in the United States right now, uh, despite a lot of denial, uh, that changes uh, water tables, it changes agriculture. Uh, these are multifaceted, extremely complex problems, and we seem to put a lot of quick elixirs in front of the public and call it a day. How, how do we get around that? How do we educate the public so that uh, when they go in to vote, for example, in ballots in the United States, uh, in their local precincts, their, their local areas, that they'll be more educated? And, and I guess my second follow-on question is, are we informed enough to even vote? Well, you've you've uh, picked one of the most complicated uh, policy issues. Um, well, they must on, have on told you it wasn't going to be easy yeah. to have this conversation. No, it, today. no, it, and it, it's it, it's a good one to um, yeah. I think to focus on. Uh, you know, the the um, the climate uh, change. It, the science of that is clear to many many people. But there are some important holdouts as well, um, and, and whether the climate is truly changing, and if it is, what is causing it? Those are two of the most contentious questions on, on the policy la- landscape. But, you know, I believe that both sides have one thing in common. The actual effects of policies we choose today and policies that are being advocated by one side or another, it really aren't going to be known for a generation or more. 
And so at RAND, we've addressed that challenge by asking how do you fashion a policy in the near term when you won't know its effects for a long, long time. There you and, go. And that quandary has led us to develop a number of techniques for devising policies that, that uh, we, we um, use the term are robust. And by that we mean they're not optimized for a particular specific future scenario, which may or may not turn out to be the, the actual uh, scenario, but which are good for the vast majority of plausible scenarios and disastrous for very few. In other words, how do you minimize changes or policy choices that we will regret tomorrow? Um, and, and that's been our focus. Um, there actually is quite a bit of objective research. I mentioned we publish a thousand different uh, products a year, and our challenge is to make them more and more accessible. So we post everything for free in full on our website. Uh, we have newsletters people can follow, um, increasingly using social media. And we know that more and more people are are uh, turning to, to this kind of, of um, research. And so we're, we're hoping to play a small but growing role in the kind of education that you're talking about. Well, I have to say that uh, it's one of my favorite sources, and everyone that I work with uh, is very appreciative of the work that the, the RAND Corporation does. Uh, let me ask you this uh, before we have to go to break here. Uh, based on what you know about threats to the United States or even threats to the planet, what planet, what, what research keeps you awake at night? Well, it seems like uh, there's no shortage of uh, concerns and dangers, but um, one thing I think to be worried about is the in, um, uh, the proliferation of what some people call ungoverned territories, uh, large areas of land that are not um, uh, controlled by any organized government. Uh, and uh, those kinds of territories, uh, those areas, um, uh, could be breeding grounds or sanctuaries for extremists. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges we'll be uh, wrestling with for a long time. But the deter but uh, some of the other uh, matters that you've talked about, uh, rapid urbanization, uh, the lack of access to modern education, uh, and so on, are also things that are potentially in the medium and long term threats to the United States and, and our allies and friends as well. When you talk about ungoverned territories, can you give us a quick example? Well, the one that is most uh, commonly in the news um, are the, the uh, some of the areas in northwestern Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, but now increasingly there are some in Africa as well. And I think one of the concerns is uh, the f fallout from the conflict in Syria means that there are now large swath swaths of that country that um, really don't have an organized uh, government authority to mm -hmm. allow economic Progress to, we have to, to take our last scheduled break. We'll be right back with Michael Rich. You're listening to the Costa Report. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. But something you may not know is that Dr. King was represented by the world's foremost speaking agency, the American Program Bureau. The American Program Bureau has a courageous history of representing luminaries, entertainers, and motivators from all backgrounds. From Ronald Reagan, Richard Branson, and Mikhail Gorbachev, to John Stewart, Michael Douglas, and Desmond Tutu. From A-list celebrities to best-selling authors, cutting-edge business leaders, and the greatest minds in academia, the American Program Bureau has speakers to fit every venue and every budget. When corporations, conferences, schools, and community organizations need an expert speaker, they turn to the American Program Bureau to to help them craft an event that will be remembered long afterwards. To inquire about a speaker for your next engagement, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or visit our website at apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. Hi, Scott. You know, I was recently traveling and I wanted to buy a thank you gift for my host. And since Caraccioli Wines makes such a nice gift, I found myself wishing there was a way I could get my hands on some. You know, the best way to get your hands on some is visit us in the tasting room in downtown Carmel or check out the website. And for an occasion, it's always great to give a magnum. It really, it's, it's an extra little I'm thanking of you gift because you can't get it anywhere. And really, those are the two locations that sell the large format bottle. Now, can I get a magnum off of the website? Yes, you can. And we'll actually ship it right to your doorstep. 
Wow. And how long does that take? You know, we'll have it to you even on the other side of the country on the East Coast in five days. Five days, really. So what can I get a magnum of? Uh, We have a magnum in our Brute Cuvée, our Brute Rosé, as well as our Pinot Noir. And the website again? That's www.caracciolicellars.com. That's C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I-C-E-L-L-A-R-S.com. Shirtcrafter, your one-stop print shop, has been locally owned and operated in Santa Cruz for a decade, providing custom design services to help you build your brand. Shirtcrafter provides top-of-the-line custom screen printing, digital printing, embroidery, stickers, banners, business cards, and so much more. They carry top-quality brands of gear from T-shirts and polos to sweatshirts and ball caps. Whether you're outfitting your softball team or team building for your business, Shirtcrafter has it all. So build your brand with Shirtcrafter, located at 111 Ingalls Street in Santa Cruz, or go to www.shirtcrafter.com. Or you could give them a call at 831-423-0537. That's Shirtcrafter, 831-423-0537. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the president and CEO of the RAND Corporation, Michael Rich. As the commerce becomes more globalized, uh, corporations seem to have a bigger role to play in these policy decisions. And you've pointed out that they have to make sure that supply chains remain open and their energy needs are met, their employees and patents and brands are all protected. But many Americans are worried that in recent times, business has begun to play too big a role in government. What's your view on that? Um, You know, I'm still form, uh, to be honest with you, I'm still forming a view uh, of that. Um, The the trade-offs between privacy and security are um, are very complex, and um, I'm hoping one day uh, we'll help develop some overarching principles for striking that balance. But I think in the in the um, in the meantime, we're going to have to maybe make some choices on a case by case basis. But I think it's um, I, I'm I hope you you and your programs uh, ahead will shine a light so that we have a a, a good and sound um, rich public discourse uh, about uh, what the trade-offs ought, ought to be. It's interesting. I feel the same way you do. I'm of both. I'm of two minds on this. I think some of the discipline that business has. Would those principles would be well applied to running government efficiently? Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, some of the um, the ability to make decisions not simply based on economics, but for the greater good, uh, those principles would serve business better. So I, I think there's. I'd like to see more cross pollination, not dominance by one or the other. Well, that's. Um, I think uh, you're right on target there. And in fact, um, increasingly, I think we're seeing the need for more creative combinations of public and private par- uh, uh, activities in addressing problems. One of the things we're uh, spending an increasing amount of, of effort and time examining is the subject of, of how to build community resilience in the face of either natural or man-made disasters. Uh, emergency preparedness takes care of the immediate uh, period uh, after a disaster. Um, and um, a lot of uh, communities have gotten good. There's obviously lots of room for improvement. But where there's a real need for improvement is uh, the preparedness or the readiness to deal deal with um, the long-term consequences of natural disasters. And it's pretty clear from the research we've done that that's not just a public sector or a public agency responsibility. That's going to have to be something that community organizations as well as businesses uh, step up and play a role as well. Defining the respective roles, uh, the way those uh, organizations and sectors work together, that's the big policy challenge, and, and we're working on that. You're absolutely right. I'm a first responder for the Red Cross, and after Hurricane Katrina and a couple of other uh, hurricanes that particular year, I can tell you that none of the government FEMA trucks could get down there, but Walmart somehow was able to get their supplies into New Orleans and and Pompano Beach, and before we saw any government aid, uh, here came the Walmart trucks. 
Well, ideally, um, we would know in advance uh, which organizations have which capabilities and be able uh, to adapt a response that takes advantage of the the best capabilities. And uh, that's a different way of thinking about things, Um, but it's going to be increasingly necessary as the frequency of these large disasters um, increases. Right. And and, uh, the Red Cross is actually very good at subcontracting to uh, the Walmarts and and large hotel chains and things to provide temporary relief. A lot of people are surprised about that, Uh, but there is a very good uh, cooperation between a nonprofit and also for-profit businesses, Uh, and it seems to work very well in providing services to those that need them. Um, Now, I want to get back to my question about whether Americans are well-informed. Uh, recently, I, I made a confession, and I, I don't think I got so many emails in all my life. I made a confession that I'm not qualified to vote on the vast majority of ballot measures in California uh, because, one, they're worded ver- in a very confusing way. Yes actually means I'm voting no, and no means I'm voting yes. And when I read the initiatives, I realize, well, I haven't researched this well enough. And maybe I'm just over-analytical, and that could very well be my problem. But are, are we informed? enough to be able to make fact-based decisions or are we contributing to making decisions based on gut feel and unproven beliefs? Well, I think there's a role for gut feel and instinct. Um, you know, the mission statement of RAND has the um, the word help in it. Uh, we, we're trying to help improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis because we recognize that um, even the best data and the best historical lessons and the best analytical techniques and, and so on aren't necessarily going to capture all of the important considerations or factors. And so people have to use their own experience and, and judgment. Um, but your um, original, the thrust of your question, I think, is is apt. Um, there's a lot of information available, um, but um, how much of it is sound, uh, unbiased, um, that's a big uh, question mark. And um, Well, most uh, of Americans admit they're getting their information from the television, the radio, and, uh, you know, in publications uh, published on the Internet. And as you know, for every bad study that says one thing, there's five bad studies that say another thing. So in an environment like that, uh, what can we do? Uh, now, I would say go to RAND Corporation because you've got nonpartisan and, and empirically proven research. Uh, but I, I really am worried. I'm worried yeah. that the very fabric of democracy is breaking down because, we, because the voters themselves are not making fact-based decisions and choices. <laughs> Uh, Not only that, but um, a relatively small slice of our uh, citizenry are actually voting. Uh, We have only a a fraction of the eligible voters registering to vote, and then only a fraction, sometimes a very small uh, percentage of the registered voters participating in in elections. And And the media is so polarized. If they're getting their information from the media... Uh, then, you know, uh, what kind of voting information is that? (laughs) You can see I'm concerned. Uh, So am I, and so are a lot of people, but uh, it's one of the things that I think makes us at RAND more determined in what we do. And so we spend uh, a lot of time thinking about how to ensure that our work um, is is nonpartisan, rigorous, objective, and that our dissemination is fair and balanced as well. So I like to say now the work is nonpartisan and the dissemination is strictly bipartisan because often you can uh, undermine the appearance of objectivity by uh, tilting in one direction in the way that we um, uh, uh, disseminate the work. And so we try to be balanced in everything we do. But it starts with a statement of aspirations that we, we need to be objective and rigorous. We're then very careful in the way we hire and evaluate uh, the talent that we use, our research and, and a key support staff. Uh, we then have balance in the oversight mechanisms. Our trustees uh, come from all walks of life, uh, all parts of the political spectrum, so that's important. Uh, we subject all of our research to peer review, uh, technical review, so that the work is bulletproof. Uh, but what we really need is RAND on television. We need Rand on the radio. We need you, Mr. Rich, 
to do a, a you know drive time radio program to go on the air on television because if we if the think tanks don't begin to leverage mass media then we really are leaving it up to polarized hosts and news bureaus. Well, in the meantime, um, uh, all well, of will our you research, do it? Uh, <laughs> all of our, <laughs> I, I'm happy. To oh, come, let me put you on the spot. I'm here. happy to come back whenever you invite me. But in the meantime, people um, can access all of our work uh, on rand.org, and I really encourage people to to look through our newsletters and alerts um, and uh, read the Rand blog. Uh, we're on social media, and um, uh, we'd like to hear from people uh, as well. You know, one of the keys to objectivity, I think, is exposure. So we we believe um, in publishing our results and disseminating it widely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Can people you who give your website to, out to our audience sure. today? Sure, it's uh, it's very simple. It's www.randrand.org. O-R-G, mm-hmm. uh, the non nonprofit suffix, so mm-hmm. rand.org. And as I say, there's there's thousands of documents on a wide variety of subjects, uh, and people can read the actual research um, uh, products themselves, the reports. They're often long, um, uh, detailed documentation, uh, but there's a lot of summaries, abstracts, um, uh, and uh, uh, smaller briefs that um, people can skim uh, and decide whether or not they want to dive in. Well, that is our program for today, uh, and I would love to have you back, and I hope you will think about a television and radio program and leveraging the mass media so that we can get more of Rand's research out there into the public. Uh, but before we say goodbye to you, I, I do want to take this opportunity to thank you for bringing more facts to light. Thank you, Mr. Rich. Thank you. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over the Internet. And let me know what you thought about our conversation with Mr. Rich today. And if you missed the full interview with Rich or any of our other guests, remember you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. Uh, And um, I I really want to clue you in that next week we have an amazing guest uh, who you're not going to want to miss. George Pataki will be with us to talk about how he's joined forces with Governor Andrew Cuomo to cut $2 billion, that's billion with a B in taxes this year. What happens when two former adversaries come together to lower taxes? Well, you can find out next week right here on the only news program which puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to The Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.